So I, I just, uh, I felt, you can go ahead and be seated. Uh, I, I, I felt today this, this, just this idea, a feeling that I had this morning. The idea was that, um, that someone doesn't want to be here, but it goes beyond that because that's general, because I know that's 95% of you, right? But it goes beyond that. It's that the thought of being here is almost, it just like, it turns your stomach. There was just something about it that like, you, you couldn't almost bring yourself to come today. And I, I, I kind of just want to speak over you the truth that God is fighting for you. And, and what I want you to know is specifically that, yeah, he's fighting for your situation, but more than that, he's fighting for your attention. And he's fighting that you would just kind of lift up your eyes and, and catch vision, and that his presence in the situation would just begin to bring an overwhelming peace to you and for you. And so just, let's just pray for that, Lord. I just want to pray for anyone who just, who feels this walking in today or the thought of getting ready, there was just this pit in their stomach, there was just this sick feeling of, I, I don't want to come here today, maybe... Maybe they felt like a, a, a liar coming here today or putting up a facade because they're fighting with faith or they're fighting with circumstances and they're wondering where you are. And today my prayer is, is that they would lift up their eyes and they would see Jesus. And I pray that you would just, 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 just whisper into their situation that you are fighting for them and that if they will endure, that in the end, all good things that you have promised to us, all good things that you have promised to them will be theirs. I pray that over the individual, the individuals, but I pray it over all of us because at some point we're all going to be in a storm and I pray that our eyes could be fixed and locked upon you to give us the strength to continue to move forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I am so glad that you are here, and I'm glad you came back after last week, just to be honest with you. I'm glad that you're back. My name is Marty. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us, hopefully you received an orange card. Typically, we have a large tent outside. It broke this morning, so if you didn't get one, make sure you pick one up on your way out. Fill that out. We got a little gift for you uh, just for doing that. We would appreciate it. Inside your bulletins, what I want you to be aware of is next Sunday, we are having a baptism celebration. And so if you have recently committed your life to Jesus, then uh, the next step that Scripture speaks about is for you to make that outward confession to your community, and this is the community. And so I want to encourage you that if you've made that decision to follow Christ, and if you've never been baptized, that this would be your opportunity. I would be honored to play a small role in that spiritual journey with you. Your community would love to celebrate with you. Maybe you've been baptized in the past, but you've had a year or a season of wandering, and you've recently come back and rededicated yourself to Christ, and, and you just feel that urge that you want to be rebaptized as a, as a symbol of the old you being crucified, and the new you coming out of the water, symbolic of the new you being the real you, then you can sign up for that through the bulletin. We'd love to participate with you. Uh, sign up if you have children who have recently uh, made that decision and they understand what that means. Uh, you can sign up. We'll give you some information to help 
in communicating that with your children as well. So that'll be next week. Look forward to that, celebrating with you. Uh, Reveal Moms Connect Group is meeting tomorrow at 10 a.m. here at the church. And so, uh, moms, if you're looking to uh, meet some uh, women, do life together with some other people, there's a great opportunity for you. And then one thing to be aware of, and that is this thing called three practice circles. Um, much communication in our country today just kind of dissolves into fighting and screaming. And Three Circles is a book that was recently written that is trying to help us listen to one another. And the goal in Three Circles is not uh, is, is listening, it's clarity, not over agreement, meaning I'm not trying to win you to my side, I'm just trying to listen to you, I'm trying to have you listen with me. And so we're going to do a three-circle uh, event coming up here, it lasts about 90 minutes. And so there is a question in your bulletin that will be the question that we will be discussing. By design, that question should hit a top hot bucket, hot button on you, right? The question is, is America a Christian nation? It is designed to get polar opposites, to be able to share their thoughts and their feelings in a non-heated environment to learn to listen to one another. To be a part of that, though, you need to sign up for it so we can get you more information. I would love for you to be a part of that, and so you can sign up through the bulletin. Online community, welcome. We're so glad that you are here with us. We trust that you will also sense the presence of the Holy Spirit that is here with us today and that God has something powerful for you this morning. Well, uh, we're on week two of our series called The Cross, the Sword, and the Flag, uh, or what I've been calling the most controversial sermon I've ever preached. Uh, And part of that will be up to you as far as uh, your opinion. Um, But we are jumping into some murky waters today. Uh, Last week, we kind of just dipped our toe in the water. Today, we're jumping off the deep end. It's a cannonball. And so before I'm midair, Uh, Let me just remind you that my role as your pastor is not always to just tell you what you want to hear, but is to challenge you, and that sometimes it's good to sit in the tension, even when it's uncomfortable. The tension that comes with having our ideologies challenged, our belief systems challenged, and even our theology challenged. So all I'm asking of you is that I have really labored to choose my words wisely. I am asking that you will weigh this series against Scripture and against Scripture alone. Not a political preference, not love of country, not education, and not personal experience, but that we will allow Scripture to speak for itself. Now, it's really important that you understand that this series is not intended to be political. I have never used the stage to try to influence your politics. That is not in any way what I'm trying to do. Yes, we are discussing some political ideologies, but we're doing so through the lens of Scripture. And so I want us to approach all of this uh, biblically and not politically, and that means that if your first response is to protect your political opinion, you're just kind of missing the point. Of, of, of where we're kind of trying to go with this. Now, full disclosure, uh, this series uh, is birthed out of my concern that I've had for a couple years now regarding the blending of faith and country. And my concern is, is that faith in America or Christianity in America is being influenced through our love for America. 
I'm not saying you shouldn't love America. I love America. There's no place else I would rather want to be. But my concern is that Christianity in America is being filtered, being influenced through our love for America. And history is clear. History proves the dangers that lurk when faith is fused with patriotism. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote about this uh, in his book, The Screwtape Letters. It's a satire, 31 chapters, uh, that is written from an experienced demon named Screwtape to his student named Wormwood in the effective strategies of leading Christians astray. Now, this was first published in 1941 uh, during World War II, and they reference, he references the war effort and the struggle that was going on between patriotism and pacifism. I want to re- read you what C.S. Lewis wrote. Whichever he adopts, meaning whichever the Christian adopts, whether it's patriotism or pacifism, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or pacifism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of a partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part, the most important part of the religion. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause, or that faith is a means to accomplish a goal in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent argument it can produce in favor of the British war effort or in favor of pacifism. Once you have made the world an end, and faith a means to that end, you have almost won your man. And it takes very little, and it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he or she is pursuing provided that meetings and pamphlets and policies and movements, causes and crusades matter more to him or her than prayer, sacrament, and love. He is ours, and the more religious, the more securely ours. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. When when faith is fused with country, in the end, I think both become distorted. For the cross was never intended to be wrapped in a flag. Because the cross does not represent a a person. A cross does not represent a country or a political leader or a race or a government or even an economic system. The cross stands alone, and at the same time, the cross stands for everyone. And so I want us to continue this morning with the conversation we had last week, and I want us to clearly draw a distinction between two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. Now, when we speak of the kingdom of the world, we don't use that phrase much anymore. I'm just referencing any country or any government type of system. When brought before Pilate, Jesus said that my kingdom is unlike any kingdom you are familiar with. John 18, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, now Jesus is about to describe what people do in the kingdom of this world and how they respond when pressed, right? What what, what do they do? Well, they fight to persevere power and position and influence or a way of life, right? He says, if it were, go to the next verse, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Let's jump in to his sermon series I've called The Upside Down Kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, 
uh, today, really just asking that we could weigh everything that is said through Scripture, and I, I, I realize that we are taking a giant leap into, into the deep end of murky waters today, and so Holy Spirit, I'm praying that you would speak, that uh, you would uh, not allow anything that shouldn't be said to be spoken, and let only what is heard, only what is spoken be heard, and in the end, we, just, we, want, to, we want to be disciples that are pleasing to you, to please you in all respects, as Colossians 1 says. So that is our prayer. I pray that you would speak to us, speak to us clearly, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's talk about the two kingdoms, and then we're going to really jump in the last quarter of this sermon today. Two kingdoms. What I want us to realize is that the kingdom of the world is ruled by the sword. We talked about that last week. That means a power over system of authority. Where the kingdom of God is empowered by the cross or a power under system of sacrifice. Hours before his crucifixion, Jesus gathers his disciples for one last meal. What, what, what do you say when time is short and when words are at a premium? Well, here's what Jesus told them. Luke 22. Jesus said to them, the kings and the Gentiles, the kings of the Gentiles are those who are in authority. Lord it over, there it is, lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over, there it is again, power over, call themselves benefactors, or, or, or they try to convince you that they're doing it for your own good. This is the definition of power over authority. The ability to impose your will on others by force, legislation, or threat. That's what power over is. And every kingdom of the world operates out of a power over authority structure. Now, catch what Jesus said next. He's describing how his kingdom will function in a power over culture. And he says this, verse 26, but you, but you are not to be like that. In other words, power over authority will not be the way of my disciples or the way of my kingdom, right? And then he says, if you want to know what the way is, he's going to say, this is the way. Jesus said that first, actually. It wasn't the Mandalorian. Jesus said, this is the way, verse 26. But you are not like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. What was the youngest? Well, they assumed the lowest position. They had the least privilege. And the one who rules like the one who serves. Mark 10, Jesus said it this way, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a servant of all. Jesus was not saying that you must start at the bottom and work your way up. He's actually saying that in my kingdom, my disciples will find their influence, will find power, will find authority at the bottom. It's not to start at the bottom and work your way up, but that the kingdom actually moves forward through living in a power under sacrificial way. Now, this was just not talk for Jesus. He modeled the ultimate power under sacrifice in the final verse, verse 45. Right? Not so with you instead. Whoever wants to become great must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be servant of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, power under sacrifice as a ransom for many. Remember, Jesus is describing what faith looks like in a power over kingdom. And he's saying, look, as my disciples, as my followers, the only real power you're ever going to have will come through power 
under sacrifice. Because Jesus knew that his kingdom will never thrive as a power over a kingdom or imposing its will on culture. We, we may temporarily get culture to conform, but it will not bring a culture to Jesus. Power over is not the way of the kingdom. Number two, citizens of an earthly kingdom pledge their loyalty to Caesar. Citizens of the kingdom of God pledge their allegiance to Jesus. Now listen, this suggests that we must maintain a healthy distance between our allegiance to Christ and our allegiance to country. Loyalty to country is not a bad thing. I'm not saying that at all. As long as it does not become the main thing. As long as it does not become equal to or on par with our loyalty to Christ. When recruiting his disciples, it's really interesting. Jesus recruits two men who are on polar opposites of the political spectrum. Matthew was a tax collector. He was an operative for the Roman Empire. Uh, he, it was the most loathed profession in all of Judaism. They were known to steal money from their own people. They were not the guy that you would want at your party because everyone hated them. Kind of like cowboy fans, right? Just think of it that way. Now, in this upside-down kingdom, though, Jesus recruits Matthew to be his disciple. And then at the same time, he goes to Simon and gives the same, uh, the same invitation. What you need to know about Simon is Simon was a zealot. And zealots believed that, that freedom from under Roman oppression was only going to come one way, and that was through swinging the sword. Zealots believe that the only way freedom comes to Israel is, is, is through uh, acts of violence, swinging the sword uh, uh, through, through force, and Rome often considered zealots religious terrorists. So if you were a tax collector, if you were an agent of Rome, you were public enemy number one. Now imagine Simon showing up for the very first Jesus is King meeting. Right, and he shows up and he loads up on free coffee and donuts and he turns around and there is Matthew seated among the 11. It had to be a hold me back moment, right? Hold me back, hold, which is what guys say when we want to look tough, but we actually don't want to do anything. So it, it had to be a hold me back moment. Matthew was public enemy number one. And, and yet here Jesus recruits two men on opposite ends of the political spectrum opposite sides of the political aisle, and I believe he was making a powerful statement as to where one's allegiance ultimately lies. I think what he's saying is that, is that when you become a disciple of mine, political loyalties become rather trivial. Because what unites us, or who unites us, is stronger than any political system that should be trying to divide us. See, it becomes a slippery slope when our love for country or our loyalty to a political system becomes the filter by which we measure someone's authenticity of faith. And it has been happening on an alarming level the last several years. Look, if I stand before you and I tell you I'm a card-carrying socialist, which I'm not, and we can have spirited debate, spirited conversation, but it should not cause you to question my salvation because they're two different kingdoms. Listen, if it does cause you to question my salvation, listen, 
It happens because we have elevated the kingdom of the world philosophy above the kingdom of God's salvation. I mean, do, do we really want to be the one that says you can't be a Christian if you're a blank? Like, we, we want to be the ones to draw that conclusion. Do we think so little of the cross that a D or an R on a voter registration card can remove us from the mercy of God? Listen, if salvation is that fragile, we're all in trouble. Every one of us, if salvation is that fragile, and we think that little of the cross of Christ. I don't think that's the road we want to go down. Citizens on an earthly kingdom pledge their loyalty to Caesar. Citizens in the kingdom of God, we pledge our allegiance to Jesus. Number three, kingdoms of the world are tribal, where the kingdom of God is universal. In the kingdom of the world, we will always be pressed to, to choose a side. Are you for us or are you for them? Are you on our side or are you on their side? If you're not with us, then by logic, you are against us. See, I think today everything, everything uh, 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 in our fallen state, which the Bible calls sin, pushes us toward a bias for people who are like us. It is only natural. This is why we naturally give a preference to our in-group for people like me, my tribe, people who look like me, think like me, behave like me. Kingdoms of the world will always be tribal because we naturally assume that my way is best. My school is the best school, right? We, we naturally think that. My team is the best team. My political party is the best political party. My church is the best church. My pastor is the best. I'll give you that one, all right? Right? Or my country is the best country, and some go far as to say my race is the best race. And we draw a line in the sand that defines who's in and who's out, and then we fight all those who oppose us, and if we don't fight with weapons, and we fight with words. The, the perspective from the kingdom of God is never tribal. Right? Kingdom of the world, we, we understand, right? They, they, to, to function, they, the inward focus has to be on the kingdom of the world. But the kingdom of God is never tribal. The kingdom of God is universal because Jesus died for everyone, because everyone has equal value in his kingdom, because we are all image bearers of God. And that means that ultimately you are not my enemy. If you have flesh and blood, scripture says, you are not my enemy. Look at Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Ultimately, it's not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers in this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, in my fallen condition, it's easy for me, and even somewhat empowering, to point at those people and say, you're the problem, and you're my enemy. It's the Democrats, or it's the Republicans, it's the liberal, or it's the conservative, it's, the, it's, it's that left, or it's, it's the right, or it's the atheist, or the evolutionist, or it's the homosexual, or it's the feminist, and Scripture says, you're all wrong. Now, you have an enemy. There's a power, there's a force beyond what you see with your eyes, and if you're, if you're fighting the wrong enemy, you're fighting on the wrong front. Let's look at it again. Kingdoms of the world address issues of sin. This one's really important. I'm going to lose some of you here, but we're going. Kingdom of the world addresses issues of crime, and the kingdom of God addresses issues of sin. Now, crime and sin are different categories. You can commit a crime 
and not commit a sin. Or those who broke Jim Crow laws were committed a crime and were, and, and were punished for it, but they did not commit a sin. But you can also commit a sin and not commit a crime. Gluttony, the Bible says, is a sin. But no one's going to lock you up for it, which is a good thing, because most of us would be wearing orange, right? Right? And so I, w- I want us to see the difference. Now, here we go. Cannonball. As a kingdom of God participant, I can believe something is a sin, but that doesn't necessarily mean I want the kingdom of the world to make it a crime. Because there's two different kingdoms. Uh, let's, let's go specific. Let's talk about homosexuality. I, I believe that it is not God's best for us. Uh, I think it misses the mark, and the Bible calls that sin. Now, I would also tell you that the church has done a horrible injustice in how we have treated the LGBT community. Right? We have demonized them above our own sin. Now, I can believe that homosexuality is not God's best for us, that it misses the mark. But just because I believe it is sin does not mean I think it should be a crime. Because it's two different kingdoms. Right? We do not live in a theocracy. Now listen, personally, personally, I could not officiate a wedding ceremony. This is personally, but I also don't think it should be illegal. Because we are not living in a theocracy. I don't want to live in a theocracy. I, I have no conflict within my spirit because they are different kingdoms and the kingdoms address completely different issues. Now, I know I'm pushing some of you, so I'm going to put this in perspective. You're going to say it may make you angry. Right? Let me, let me put this into perspective. Scripture speaks out more against divorce than it does against homosexuality. I'm not saying homosexuality. I'm not dismissing it. Right? I'm just bringing up facts because we're looking at Scripture. We're Bible people. Scripture speaks about divorce more than it does against homosexuality. I believe in most cases divorce is not God's best for us. All right? It misses the mark. Scripture is clear on that. There was a time in our country that if you were divorced, you could not be a member of certain denominations. You could not participate in Holy Communion, and you were shunned by the church. Now imagine if back in the 40s and 50s, the church rallied to try to outlaw second marriages after divorce. And you'd be like, wait, wait, wait. Well, it's in the Bible, so we should just legislate sin. That is not the country I want to live in, personally. Some of you would be excluded from the person you're married to and quite happy right now. <laughs> right? And so it, it, it becomes a little more difficult that just because I see something as sin as a kingdom participant doesn't necessarily mean that I want the kingdom of the world to outlaw it as a crime. And I know that doesn't sit well with some of us. But that's something you're going to have to wrestle with. You can struggle with that. Here's what I want you to know. Everything rests, I believe, on our ability to persevere, to preserve the radical difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Because history proves that when we fail to recognize the differences and fuse the two together, in the end, both become severely distorted. Because when a kingdom of the world is operating, even when the kingdom, any kingdom of the world, even when it's operating at its best, at its best, it's still a power over kingdom. Which is the exact opposite of the power under sacrifice that is the kingdom of God. 
So even when a kingdom of the world is at its best, it still doesn't even nearly approach the kingdom of God. Listen, I'm I'm not even sure, I'm I'm not even sure you can have a Christian nation any more than you can have a Christian car. Just because it was assembled by Christians doesn't mean it's a Christian car. Now, at our best, what I'm trying to say that even at our best, and I think we have done phenomenal good throughout the world. At our best, America is still a power over kingdom. And it's not saying that we're all bad. I think we do a pretty good job at, at how we uh, are a power over kingdom. It, 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 it does mean that as a power over kingdom, we cannot be the power under kingdom of God. They're completely different. Any country that operates out of a power under system will not be a country for long. Now listen, listen, listen. God does not expect any earthly kingdom to turn the other cheek. But for those who are in the kingdom of God, he says, turn the other cheek. No earthly kingdom is going to love its enemy, but in the kingdom of God, he commands us to love our enemy. Bless those who persecute you is not a mandate given to any earthly kingdom, but for those who are part of a heavenly kingdom, this is exactly what is expected of us. Listen, listen. There's a, there's, there's a reason why this phrase that is circulating around right now, taking America back for God, concerns me. Because it implies that America once had this golden age when as a country we were Christian or we were more Christian or as a country we were Christ-like. Now, here comes the cannonball. And I'm not a small man, so there's going to be a big splash. I want us to explore the possible consequences that come from labeling America a Christian nation. Consequences of labeling America a Christian nation. Here's here's my first thought. I think it weakens our witness for Jesus. Let me explain what that means, okay? Hang with me. By God's design, the kingdom of God is revealed on earth through his church. And who is the church? You are the church. And so Jesus says, for example, that that this should be your calling card, love, right? In John 13, 35, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love, if you love one another. As Christ's followers, the way we love is a reflection of the God that we serve. This is really important, right? The character of God is revealed by those who are part of the kingdom of God. This is how the gospel message goes forward. This is how people have a a revelation of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like by looking at those who follow Jesus, by looking at his church. As disciples of Jesus, we represent Jesus. We are revealing Jesus. You've probably heard it said that you may be the only Jesus some people ever see. That can either be a positive or it can be a negative. Now listen, listen. This means that when we label America as a Christian nation, everything America does now represents Jesus and is a reflection of Jesus. Listen, we do some some things really, really well, but at our best, we're still a power over kingdom. Labeling America as Christian, I think it hinders our witness because nations of the world now look at our worst and say, if that's what it means to be a Christ follower, I'll pass. They look at our divorce rate, which is among the highest in the world, and say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't need to be a Christian. 
Do you know which country has the most traffic to pornographic websites? We're number one. Yeah, America. 35% of America's internet downloads are all related to pornography. Listen, if this is what it means to be Christian, I don't need to be Christian. One, one of the darker, this is hard, hard to say, right? But we have to address some of this. One of the darker chapters in our country's history is the genocide of some 15 million Native Americans. Often in the name of God. You remember Manifest Destiny, right? From grade school. Right? The belief that America was, was granted a God-given destiny to, op, to occupy North America. Now let, let's acknowledge the painful truth. Native Americans look back on the pages of history and think if that's Christianity, if that's what Jesus is, I don't want that Jesus. And if you think this isn't going on today, I, let, let me just tell you, you are being sheltered. I've spoken to people, right? Everything America does now becomes the calling card for Jesus and both the kingdom of the world, America, and the kingdom of God become distorted. Now look, before you send me off an angry email, let me balance this out. Please listen to me. I'm not saying America has not done good, right? I believe the world is a better place overall because of us. I will grant that America was founded on some really good godly principles. I am not suggesting America has not done good. I am simply suggesting we, leave, we, we remove the label as, of godly. Because we're still a power over system. We cannot represent the power under sacrifice system of the kingdom of God. Now I realize that what I, what I just said is difficult for some of us. And some of you are angry. But let, me, let me just push a little more. I think, I think it's difficult to hear because we cling, please listen, we cling to a modern day version of manifest destiny. The idea that America holds a unique covenant, that's an important word, with God and as such it was ordained by God to carry out his will on the earth. I am not suggesting America has not been used by God. I am challenging the idea that God has this special covenant with America. Just do a search on I did a quick search uh, yesterday. And all kinds of headlines saying, America is breaking its covenant with God. America in jeopardy of losing its covenant with God. Now, let's just look at this through Scripture, because we're Bible people. There's only been one nation who has ever held a national covenant with God, and that was Israel. Right? The Abrahamic covenant is where God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. Going all the way back to Genesis 22, where he says, and through you, the entire world will be blessed. And we were, because Jesus came through the lineage. Now listen, Jesus changed everything. Where God no longer works through a national covenant, but now he works through a personal covenant with anyone who will say yes to Jesus. This is, this is important. Israel was supposed to showcase the majesty and the character of God as a nation. That honor now falls upon the church. Now, I realize there's a lot of talk right now from pastors and leaders who are saying that if we don't take America back for God, which often means passing certain moral legislation, like keeping marriage between a, a man and a woman, 
There's a lot of people who are saying that if we don't take America back for God, because of our moral slide, God is going to judge America because of the assumption that we have a special covenant relationship with God as a nation. I'm going to push you because I'm already deep into this. The first, the covenant relationship God has is with the church, not with any nation. All right, second, second, if God wanted to judge America, do you not think he had sufficient opportunity when for 200 years we were buying and selling human beings? Did, did, did he not have opportunity when 15 million Native Americans were killed? Listen, the issues before Congress right now same-sex marriage, HR5, those types of things. You need, to, you need to educate yourself on them, and you need to have your voice be heard, right? Absolutely. But the issues before Congress today seem to be more judgment-worthy because you're living through them. But come on. Let's take a step back. Let's look at things biblically. Let's, let, 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 let's look at the history of our nation. And let's not just jump to the scare tactic of God's going to judge a nation. If anything, God's going to judge his church. Because the church refuses to be a light in the world. Because we stay in four walls instead of busting out of walls. The covenant that God has to, to, to move the gospel message forward throughout the world is you, is me, people like you and me throughout the world who call on Jesus as, as, as Lord and Savior. That is plan A and the only plan. And so I just, I just want, us to, I want us to separate, I want us to separate the two. Now I know it's some of you. You would think, well, uh, isn't America Christian by default for promoting democracy? And isn't democracy a Christian characteristic or a Christian value? Well, let me just say that first, I wouldn't want to live under any other system, right? I believe that giving people a voice is honoring the, the God image within each person, all right? So absolutely, I, I think America should press the, the, the idea of democracy forward throughout the world. Absolutely, no, no question on that. But let's, let's look at it scripturally and say, is democracy a Christian value? Well, first, we have to say the Bible is silent on it. All right? They tried to get Jesus into political discussion on how Rome will, or how uh, uh, Israel will get out from under Roman oppression, and Jesus never took the bait. He was silent on it. And so first, we just have to say, well, 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 well I think all of us would agree, a great system wouldn't want to be anywhere else we also have to say, Scripture is largely silent on it. The other thing that we have to realize is, historically, the church has not been for it. You realize that 250 years ago, the church was not a fan of democracy. The church wanted to hold power. You realize that, that Luther, the great reformer, did not want to give voice to the peasants. And you realize that Calvin's system of government that he set up in Geneva was not a democracy, but a theocracy that burned people at the stake. I know this sucks to hear, but what I'm trying to show is that, is that, our, uh, 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 that when the church assumes a power over position, it always goes bad. The, the, it never really glorifies God. And so while I, I want democracy spread throughout the world, let's just be honest, the church is a little late to the dance. All right, the great American experiment has spread democracy throughout the world, and we should be thankful for that. But we cannot just, we cannot say that we're Christian because we promote democracy. Our faith has to be far greater than that. Consequence of labeling America as a Christian nation. I think we lose our missionary focus to America. 
Labeling America as a Christian nation or a once Christian nation leads us to believe that if we can just tweak the system, that we can reclaim our glory days. 80% plus of Americans identify as Christian. Barna Research Group has done numerous, numerous studies as to what that means. You know what it means? Nothing. It, it means nothing. I'm a Christian because it's the social religion of America. I'm a Christian because I am American. I, I, I am a Christian because I go to church on Easter and Christmas because that's what America does. I think we have this form of deism where we have a belief in God, but there's no power of God in our lives. And this, this presents a problem where our belief in God has little or no relevance in our daily lives. And I think labeling us a Christian nation, I think it kind of puts a veneer or a shellac over the reality of our nation. Because I think if we pull back the social religion, if we look past praying before football games, and if we look past in God we trust on our currency, and, 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 and if we, if we look, look, look past one nation under God in our pledge, I think we can agree that we're really left with a form of godliness that is void of God. See, I don't think our country needs to be tweaked. I think our country needs to be stormed with the power of Jesus. And no government can legislate that. Look, we are way beyond a little tweak. This is what I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm trying to get us to see the, 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 the different kingdoms. The solution is not legislating morality. The solution is the church being the church, loving like no other and serving like no other, living like no other. It's a power under sacrifice that wins people to Jesus. One more. Consequence of labeling America as a Christian nation. Bring us back to where we started. I think we trust in power over authority more than we trust in power under sacrifice. Because power under seems foolish. Like I win by dying? Like I get by giving? Right, it's the upside down kingdom. And we are naturally conditioned towards power over thinking because we, it's natural for us to assume that if, if we can just get more power, if we can pass more laws, build more accountability, clamp down, that somehow we win. But listen, when we, try to, when, when, when we try to make the nation into the church, we make the church into a nation. And both become distorted. And both lose really what they're supposed to be good at. Listen again to the mission of Jesus he left us with. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority has been given me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Make make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen, our, if, if, if the church's focus is primarily on power over authority or imposing our will on, on culture, and if we abandon power under sacrifice, we have to admit we will never fulfill this commission because you cannot legislate a disciple. You cannot coerce someone into being a disciple. Listen, use your vote, yes. Use your voice, let it be heard. But we must remember that the hope of the world does not rest on America or any other nation. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ. And we, as his disciples, are carriers of that good news.
Only Jesus can change a human heart. A law can't do it. Shame can't do it. Only Jesus can turn a heart of a sinner into the heart of a saint. Not by just kind of putting some shellac or this clean-looking veneer over a soiled heart, but he, he creates genuine transformation from the inside out. In the end, in the end, power under sacrifice costs us more, and it takes longer to see the fruit. And so that is why when, it, when we feel the urgency the urgency is to grab on to power over so at least we can see an immediate result. Power under sacrifice will cost us more. Let me give you the final one that we're going to discuss next week. The final consequence of labeling us a Christian nation is that we start to believe that America is the guardian of social morality. And we're just going to approach this through Scripture we're going to look at what Scripture has to say, and then I promise you we'll be done with this series and you can go back to liking me, okay? <laughs> Stand with me. Let's pray. All I'm asking is that you weigh what was said against Scripture. And if you disagree with me, I'm okay with that. It's really important that you understand I am not stepping on America in any way, shape, or form. I'm trying to elevate the kingdom of God because that's, that's what I signed up for, right? I, I, I want to promote the kingdom of God. I want to promote Jesus. I believe Jesus still matters. And the church needs to take that message to the world and do what we do best. Lord, today I, I, I pray that anything that was spoken that should not have been spoken uh, that you would reveal it to me so I would have opportunity to repent of that if that's what is needed. I would also pray that anything that was heard that was not said or not intended, that you would lift that off of us. And my prayer is, is that we will approach this topic uh, biblically. And my hope is, is that we leave here with an urgency that we should all should feel, but the urgency needs to be the church, needs to be the church. And we need to, through power under sacrifice, begin to, to live and love and serve like no other. That we would be carriers of the gospel message. We would be carriers of the good news that Jesus can turn the heart of a sinner into the heart of a saint. That is what we are after. And Lord, as, as, as we invest completely into the kingdom of God, we pray for America. We pray that you would intervene, and we pray that you would have your way among us, and we pray that there would be a revival that would break out in our nation, and we pray that blind eyes would be open, and, and, and we pray that hearts would be softened, and we pray that you would raise up godly people to, to, to oversee and, and, and to be in, in Washington, and we pray for all of that. But we understand that our ultimate hope is not in a nation. It is in Jesus Christ. Lord, as far as it be with this church, let us maintain the radical distinction between two kingdoms. Lord, we, we, we love our country, but our ultimate allegiance lies with Jesus Christ. I pray you would speak to us. Let us sit in the tension.
Let us wrestle with it. And let us align closer to Scripture. I pray that you would not give any room for the enemy to, to, to feed anger or bitterness right now or spew any kind of vile words. That even if we disagree, that we can understand that what unites us is far stronger than anything that tries to divide us. That is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you, Reveal. Wait one more week. Next week, I think will be very enlightening for you guys. God bless. I look forward to seeing you then.